Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Genesis of Startups, where we interview brilliant minds in entrepreneurship to explore what it's really like to start a business. Today, it is an honor to have James Crowther, a software developer, entrepreneur, and aeronautical engineer. James has quite the arsenal in his tool belt, having helped design and run Australia's first deep tech accelerator program at CSIRO. He's also built innovation programs for the New South Wales government, as well as teaching and facilitating tech innovation courses at the University of Sydney. He's the founder and managing director of CrowdRender, a tech startup that allows multiple computers to share resources, making it faster for artists to create animations and images. Just as Airbnb shares property, CrowdRender shares computing resources. So good to have you on, James. Thanks, William. Wow, you made me sound so impressive. <laughs> so can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you're currently doing? I will. I'll try and do as good a job as you did because you just, I think, made a fantastic introduction. I feel kind of like, oh, gosh, I've got to live up to this reputation now. <laughs> so as you said, yes, I'm the managing director and uh, one of the co-founders at CrowdRender. So I've been doing that on and off since about 2013, but I took the plunge pretty full on in about 2017 for a year and then went back full time on the business again since August of last year. So I've kind of been off and on doing this thing. Started out as this crazy idea I had when I was at uni doing a master's degree, actually. So I was studying a master of commerce at Sydney University and I would do lots of animations to put into our presentations because presentations, I don't know if you've ever sat through a lot of presentations at university when your fellow students, you know, the, you're presenting, they're presenting, and sometimes you just think, oh, I just want to get to the end of this because they're all kind of the same, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're just like, this is getting really boring. I want to do something more in- interesting. So I thought, you know what? I'll try and make it entertaining. So I started to put animations and videos and stuff into mine. And that's when I kind of got involved in the problem of, gosh, this takes a long time. Computers are slow. And so that was kind of the genesis for CrowdRender was feeling the pain myself and decided, you know what? I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to see if there's a way to speed this up. And so that yeah. was kind of the start of it. You know, I had a few computers around me because I was a bit of a, a computer nerd and I knew a little bit about programming. I mean, I'd done an, an aeronautical engineering course, which involved a tiny bit of computing, but aeronautical engineering is like a lot of different things rolled into one. We're kind of like the buffet engineer. We do a little yeah. bit of electrical, a little bit of aeronautics, a little bit of programming, a little bit of engine stuff, and then just mush all that together and make it fly. So that's kind of aeronautical engineering. I wasn't a computer scientist, so I just got stuck in. I've always been one of those guys that just loves to learn on the job. And I guess just through bashing things together, we made a prototype in 2016. We demonstrated that to the Blender conference. So Blender is a free and open source 3D content creation program. So we flew to Amsterdam in 2016, presented our ideas, and then launched a website the following I think January or maybe it was December of 2016, so 2017. And then slowly we've just been making updates and more progress. And then we got a grant from the government, from the New South Wales government in 2018 to build a minimum viable product as it was then called, because it was an MVP grant. They have the MVP grant. I think it's still going. So if you want to you know, try this yourself, the people who are listening, you can hop onto the New South Wales government's website and look through their grants. They might still have the MVP one. And that helped us get the first commercial service that we developed up and running because we'd been releasing a free software package for a while. And that just helped artists connect computers that they owned in their office or in their house together. So if they had two or three computers, you know, they could get potentially two or three times acceleration 
yeah. which is great. And the more computers they had, the better it got. But then we came across lots of people that maybe only had one computer. So we decided to create a partnership with another cloud service provider who also works in Amsterdam, who we met at the conference in 2016. And now you can use your own computers, but you can also add to your own computers cloud servers, which are quite powerful. So if you only have one machine, you can still accelerate your production, if you're an artist, by just adding more and more computers from the cloud. Obviously, you have to pay for those ones. That's why it was a commercial service. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of where we've got to now. And we're currently heading off in a new direction because the ultimate aim, I think, when we first came up with this idea was there's tons of computers in the world. Like, I think the last time I counted, there's about 5 billion, you know, wow. when I was looking at various different reports i thought that's a lot of computers imagine if you could harness just a tiny little bit of that so we started thinking around computer trading like maybe having computing power as a currency so something similar to bitcoin because if you think about how bitcoin works the computers are rewarded for doing all of that number crunching by getting a bitcoin whereas in our mm. sort of mind maybe the, the, the people who own the computers could be rewarded by helping other artists get their work done and we could put people that want computing power in touch with people who've got spare computing power. But unfortunately, there are several issues with that. You have to kind of make sure you've vetted each party because of the security issues. Because if you, you can imagine, like, have you ever opened a, a dodgy link from somebody and oh, been, yeah. been embarrassed or, sorry, excuse me, or maybe thought, oh, gosh, I wonder if I've got a virus now? <laughs> Look, <laughs> I, I get stuff all the time, phishing alerts, and you know you never click on them. It's the same thing. Like if someone sent you a, hey, like open my file thing, you probably wouldn't do it. But the same problem exists with sharing anything, whether it's a file on Dropbox or G Drive. You know, you're kind of a bit cagey about opening that link unless you really know the person. It's exactly the same with sharing a computing resource. Like you wouldn't necessarily want to trust someone that says, hey, use my computer. Like this is totally legit. Or you wouldn't. Likewise, necessarily offer your computer if you didn't know exactly who was going to use your computer like through the internet. So we kind of settled on the idea that where we're going in the future is, what, wouldn't it be nice if people who knew each other could share the computing resources without having to physically be in the same space? Hmm. It, it kind of takes advantage of, as you mentioned, the idle computers and people being able to you know, earn a yeah. little bit of income. Maybe, but between people that know each other, it has to be, I guess, like Facebook. Think of it like that. I mean, you've mentioned Airbnb. I think the more we dig into this problem, the more something like the social computing sharing platform makes more sense right now, just because it's it's kind of hard to protect yourself against unknown actors if they have open access to your computer. Yeah, definitely. So tell me a little bit more about what it means in, in, terms, in layman's terms on sharing computing resources. So one of the examples you mentioned was to allow animations to, to load quicker. Is there any other? stuff yeah i mean it's not peculiar just to 3d animation i mean the problem that we're solving is you have a file that in order for you to get the result you want to get in our case it's render an animation so you can watch it playback you have to use your computer literally overnight in some cases and it'll be going at pretty much 100 percent the whole night so wow yeah there are tons of other problems that do that to your computers. Like I, I used to um, work for a civil engineering firm and we used to model buildings, um, obviously, because before they're designed, we had to figure out whether they would actually stand up. Yeah. Um, we used engineering applications. They had the same thing. Like I remember going for a lot of long walks around the office because 
I just I'd said go to the computer and the computer go, oh, that'll be two hours, mate. <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> cool. Has anyone got anything else for me to do? All right, I'm taking lunch and then some. <laughs> just go for a walk around the office or <laughs> walk around the block or something, get some exercise and because I couldn't literally couldn't do anything else until I got back and I didn't have anything else to do. So I think there's a huge productivity gain you can get from being able to speed stuff up. And that's always obvious to anyone who's ever used these programs. But it happens in science. It happens in engineering. A lot of different domains. Like I suppose the big one now is training neural nets. So machine learning. AI, that whole thing, that takes a very long time as well. So yeah, there's lots of different applications for accelerating computing for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So after running this, so this is your fourth year running CrowdRender then? Fourth year running it, I think, as being mostly all in, apart from having yeah. you know, a few side gigs around. But you know, this year has been pretty much since August last year, totally 100% in. Yeah, Definitely. What would you say is your biggest piece of advice for anyone who's running their own business? Biggest piece of advice, that's an easy one. It's be patient. What purely, makes you say that? Uh, purely because it just, for, for me, my expectations, I think, were somewhat warped by stuff you read online, stuff you hear people telling you like, oh, this company's just arisen overnight, you know, and they've got millions in venture capital and they're changing the world. And you just go, I've never heard of this company before. How did they do that in what feels like, you know, the space of half an hour? And having that sort of expectation, I've gone out there and tried it and realized, actually, this takes years. Yeah. You know, I read actually, you know, like Google, it took them, what, 15 years or something to get where they are now? And with a lot of resources as well. It wasn't like they were just in their garage the whole time and then year 15 came around and they're just like, we've just taken over the world. It's a, it's a much longer and more difficult process than I think I'd assumed. And I guess, you know, my wife calls us the McDonald's generation. Because we want we want satiation and fulfillment now because we can get it in so many other areas of life. And I think we've just lost the art of waiting. And I guess, you know, I don't mean to waiting in a, I suppose, a passive sense. I mean, you're putting in a lot of effort and not seeing a lot of return. And that can get quite depressing, I guess, sometimes for want of a better word. Yeah. And you really need, I guess, what I would counsel anyone is you need to realize this is going to take a while and it's going to be obviously quite difficult and perhaps quite lean for a while. I mean, you may be fortunate to have a venture capitalist come along or an investor or someone who wishes to help you come along. But that tends to happen, you know, when you're already fairly successful, I've found, when people notice you. You can go and pitch yourself and try and get in front of people, but there's a lot of people trying that. The numbers aren't that good. For example, I mentioned we got that government grant. In the time period that we applied to actually getting the grant, we were one of a group of maybe 20 out of 600 who applied for that grant. So, and that wasn't like millions, that was like $20,000. So it was really sobering to realize that, wow, if you're going into pitch, if you're going in to get capital, then you need to realize that as prepared and as good as you are, you've got some fairly stiff odds that you're facing. Yeah. And you do need to be patient. If you get knocked back, especially, and this is part of the lesson I learned is, you will get a lot of knockbacks, you will get a lot of no's, and you will get a lot of days when it seems like the best thing to do is go and get a job. Or go and get a real job, as I sometimes tell myself. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should go get a real job. I should become a dentist. They seem to have plenty of money. <laughs> but yeah, I think having that kind of active patience where you persevere, even though you're not seeing stellar success early on, is, is a real key. Like I think that's probably the best piece of advice I could give anyone anyway. Definitely. And I, I totally feel you as someone who's started their own business as well. Sometimes we come into the world of, you know, 
it is to start your own business and and look at all these articles such as when Airbnb started getting released, started getting more popular, and then there's Uber, Facebook, these you know success stories that have appearingly came out of nowhere, and then you start to create your own business and realize that it's entirely different and it's hard. And as you mentioned, yeah, it's a sobering reality. How did you hold on to this, I suppose, idea this whole time with the realization that it's not going to grow as fast as what you expected it to be? Well, that's, I think, a trivial tool to my psychologist. You know, I'm open about, you know, I've had a bit of a struggle with mental health over the years, particularly with just being anxious about things. Because there's a lot of things to be anxious about, but I think genetically disposed towards being more anxious than most. Thankfully, you know, she gave me a lot of good advice, this person. And one thing we talked about was radical acceptance. So accepting your circumstances as they currently are, but not being consumed by that. So, you know, like, I guess I went into CrowdRender thinking it's going to be the next unicorn. You know, it's going to be as big as Facebook and Google, because why not? You know, you can dream for free. So why not? And then, you know, as things didn't quite turn out that way, I guess I started to feel a little bit despondent and wonder what the heck am I doing this for? Money's always tight in the house. You know, I got three kids. I'm not some 20-year-old guy at uni who can afford to to do this. I mean, I would love to be in that position. It'd be a heck of a lot easier. So I had all those hard questions and, you know, that sometimes people give you that advice, like you need to know when when to hang it up and do do something else. Holding on... I think for me, it was just like, I think this thing chose me. No one else is doing it. Hmm. No one else really cares about this group of users as the software call them. I call them people. I try to call them people as often as I can because they are people. As soon as we label them as something else, it kind of scares me that we're dehumanizing folk. But hmm. I guess, you know, got to find a really good reason to do it for sure. Because if it's just for money and fame, there are other ways to do it. You can, yeah, you can easily definitely. pivot your life and, you know, get money and fame other ways. In fact, someone once told me, if you want to be rich, don't be an entrepreneur. It's probably yeah. the worst way to get rich. <laughs> and I'll give that advice as well. I'll second that for sure. Yeah, that's not my advice, but someone else told me that and I can <laughs> confirm it. But what I would say is something I recently read and it really spoke to the kind of person I am. I'm not an employee. I know that now. I've discovered that about myself and I've radically accepted that I'm never going to get a job just because it's just not me. I've realized through just trial and error that I've never really been happy in paid positions. And there was this quote that came across my screen the other day, and it was just like, if you're not building your own dream, you're probably just going to end up getting hired to build somebody else's. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would think, hmm, so what's wrong with that? And they are the people who are just definitely not on my wavelength. Mm. I am definitely not the kind of guy that wants to build someone else's dream. I wish I could sort of introspect why that is, but I have, I guess, this intense interest in discovery and going out there and finding new horizons that just doesn't sit well with sitting in an office and just going through the motions. So once I'd radically accepted that, I realized, okay, great. I don't have to worry about whether I should be getting a job. Now I can focus on is this the right company? So I've at least, you know, or the right venture or the right thing I should be doing. So I've taken one massive load off my shoulders there by not worrying about whether I'm employee or whether I'm an entrepreneur. Because often, you know, when we have setbacks, you can sort of feel when you ask that question that you ask, like, what makes you keep going? You can think, oh gosh, maybe I'm just no good at being an entrepreneur. Hmm. Maybe I should go and get a job. Maybe I should give that another go. So coming to that point where I've just radically accepted whether I'm good at it or not is not the issue. It's not my dream. I feel unfulfilled 
deeply yeah. unfulfilled if I go back to that. I've, I've gone through that. I've been through it. It never fulfilled me. It never made me happy. So I'm not going to go for that. So that was, I guess, some good sense that arrived in my soul telling me, you're not going back to that, to, to being an employee. It's not you. Yeah, definitely. So now I have to decide, is, is this the right sort of um, venture that I'm on? And that's been a harder question because, as you, as you know, if you've, if, you've, if you've read around university and studied any kind of um, business or economics or anything like that, you'll be aware of something called opportunity cost. Which it weighs on us as humans incredibly heavily because you know that if you've got 10 options and they're all about the same kind of attractiveness, picking one means you lose the other nine. Absolutely. And there's something weird about our brains as humans where we really struggle with that, even though those nine cannot be realized, that they don't materialize because you can only pick one. Picking that one, for some reason, it's almost like we feel the loss of the nine, even though there wasn't any actual loss there at all. It shows up in sunk costs when people say, you ever heard someone said, but I spent all this money and all this time doing this. You know, I don't want to give it up. And you're just like, but that's the past. You can't change it. So why are you letting it dictate your future? Yeah. So there is still that problem to solve. And I guess that's, that's where I sort of get up every day and go, okay, do I have enough information? Do I have enough of a kick up the butt that's made me think this isn't it? Because I can't tell, I cannot tell the future. And I would hate to be the guy that sort of, you know, the constant thing I'm balancing is, am I just in the sunk cost mode of, I've put so much into this, I don't want to leave. And does that balance the, but what if it became everything I can see? Because you remember I spoke about, you know, are you building a dream or are you going to be hired by someone else? Well, I'm not going to be hired by someone else. Now it's more about, are you building the right dream? And I think about, gosh, if this thing really worked, it would be pretty amazing. I can imagine people being able to get their work done faster by borrowing their friend's computer down the road without ever having to go down the road to get it. Yeah. Absolutely. I can imagine this being one of those sort of platforms out there that actually helps people. And that why of why you're doing this is just like, I think it's the most powerful thing you have as an entrepreneur. Because if you don't have that why, you have nothing. <laughs> you know, hmm. we, we take on risks. We say, I'm doing this. Is anyone paying you? No. Like, okay, so how long can you keep doing this? Not very long. All right shouldn't you just get a job? You know, like it's very hard to answer all of those very hard factual questions that people ask you, friends and family ask you, you know, how are you doing financially? You know, is the business growing? You know, all those really irritating questions that people ask you where you'd think, yes, it has grown nowhere near enough to pay myself yet, but it's not zero. Definitely. I, I get your point and, and I see the struggle, you know, essentially the whole idea is what you're hanging on is, or the reason you're hanging on is there are two aspects of it. The first is to know yourself. And this is what you talked about with radical acceptance. You, you've already accepted that working for someone else and building someone else's dream isn't something that you want to do. And it's not something that you feel fulfilling. And essentially, you want to do your own thing. But then it comes to the second challenge, which is to know whether the venture that you're building is the correct one. Because yeah. you mentioned the, the whole idea of opportunity cost and sunk cost. Are you delving into the realms of treating this as a sunk cost? And that's what you are holding on to justify you working on it even more or because you can't really tell the future on when this will succeed or if it will succeed, but you Correct. can see it will succeed um, or you can see how it can succeed is, is a better way to put it. But it comes down to knowing why as well. Yes. And also I have to say things change. There were times where I thought I definitely should give this up. And I did go looking for a job. And I think mercifully, you know, fate or God or the universe intervened. 
and you know I, I think I spent probably three or four months looking for work after August of last year and then got nowhere with it for whatever reason I just struggled immensely and then I was free of that and was able to go okay what have we got and found after just a slight pivot in what we were doing that all of a sudden we got this growth out of nowhere so we were wow at the point where we were trying to attract people to donate because we wanted to employ an open source software model supported by the community, which is always tricky because it's one of those things where the, the, you know, the person can get the product for free, so why would they pay for it? And we had, I think, two people subscribed, and it was, very, it was one of those moments where you're going, sunk cost, mm, I think that's why I'm holding on to it, because it doesn't end, could this work in the future? The evidence really isn't there. So we literally appealed to our community and said, look, if you want this software, if you want to stick around, support it. So we put together a simple campaign saying, we'll stay if we get community support. And that really rattled everyone's cage, it seems. I think there were a lot of people who were using it in their in their small studios who suddenly went, hmm, that would be mightily inconvenient. So we went from, I think, two subscribers to, about, I think we're at 170 now. Wow, congrats. Over about four months. And it's, it's still climbing despite the pandemic causing a little bit of economic chaos. We have had a few people cancel saying that they've lost their jobs. But it's, it was really interesting, you know, had that not happened, I think, you know, it would have been time to sort of chuck it in. But now I've sort of realized that because people are using it, and there was definitely evidence that people were using it, there was this hidden sort of area that I couldn't see because I hadn't actually tried pitching it that way, where all of a sudden we hit sustainability in the operational costs and it didn't take very long at all. And so now, rather than going, will people really support development, though? Because we're pushing for enough funds to basically get the development team employed, including myself. I remember that now. I remember that just by making some small changes, we got suddenly a lot of traction very suddenly, and things turned around quite quickly. Because yeah. I'd, I'd experienced the opposite for quite a few years, that growth was slow, People weren't really interested in paying for what we were doing. And to have that turn around so quickly, I think it it was good a good experience to say that there are, there's always kind of a new place you can go to. You can pivot. And it may be you pivot your product, but it may be you pivot just how you're approaching people with your product. Yeah, absolutely. But how do you balance between constantly pivoting and thinking that if you just pivot one more time, you'll have a breakthrough and you know perhaps just beating a dead horse. <laughs> How do you know when you're banging your head against the brick wall? Yeah, exactly. I think you just have to, you have to have obviously a good sense of how long it takes to properly test something. I now know that it's actually, it's fairly short. Like, you know, like I said, we went from not very much traction at all to suddenly having quite strong revenue growth. And that was a matter of weeks, really. We could see the turnaround pretty much straight away after we launched this campaign. So I think, you know, if, if you've made a change which actually is really going to move the needle, you know, you're not talking years. <laughs> you're not talking yeah. even months. You're talking probably a few weeks. Just to give yeah. everyone an idea, we obviously do a lot of work online. That's the main way that we communicate with people, especially with digital. And we sort of sit in that, in that area. A lot of Kickstarter campaigns, they don't last more than a month unless they've already met, met their target and they want to extend and go for stretch goals. Hmm. In fact, you know, most... I've worked on some campaigns within the CSRO when I was there and also the New South Wales government. So all those jobs you mentioned, I did. Thank you again for making me sound really impressive. Appreciate that. <laughs> Our campaigns were always short. They're always like two, three weeks tops because there's, a, there's very little return on dragging them out. So I'd recommend any pivot if you're going to get the word out there and say, hey, we've changed stuff. 
you'll know whether to persist in the pivot pretty quickly. Yeah, and, definitely. you know, first two weeks, it was obvious. It was night and day for us. It was just like, wow, we've got all these people signing up all of a sudden. So all we have to do is just manage that carefully. Because, you know, you, if you get thrown if you get thrown a good pass, whatever sporting metaphor I'm going to use now, I don't play sport that often, so maybe I shouldn't have <laughs> Oh, dear. But, you know, if you get given something that's got real opportunity on it, you kind of want to manage it well, you know, not be either overly nervous about it or overly blasé about it. And that's, I guess that's life, you know, like Bill Gates, I remember him saying 99% of everything is luck, I guess. And I guess suppose the 1% is you not screwing it up. Like my wife, mm. she's a cordon bleu chef and she always says, you know, start with good ingredients and then just don't ruin them. <laughs> and that felt like this, like we're, we're managing carefully how we go from here. Because obviously I kind of feel like we dialed in like on a radio dial. Oh gosh, does anyone still do kind of thinking now like when was the last time i tuned a radio in that's probably like 20 years ago <laughs> but it's kind of like you know you get something just about right like balance it and you don't want to throw it off too much with constant pivoting so i guess yeah you'll know pretty soon and then i guess the trick from there is just fine tuning but yeah don't pivot you know like mad or pivot and then think it's going to work and then give it another six months it's usually pretty obvious i mean at least in digital we're talking in sort of the area where you've got rapid communication channels yeah, and your product is easy to ship, like it's downloadable, it can be installed in a few seconds because the amount of time it takes someone to grab our software and actually use it and develop an opinion is very short. If you're in some other, like let's say you're in some other industry where that takes a lot longer, then sure, your pivot time is probably going to be quite a bit longer, like you, you'd want to leave it a bit longer. But certainly in digital with software, it's it's usually quite short. Hmm. I get your point. Uh, and I suppose the whole idea is when you start to do pivots, I guess in a way you do some sort of cost-benefit analysis. You can see how long it'll take for you to yield the results when you test it. And from there, if you feel that it's going, or you can see that it's going to take years or months, then perhaps you start to question whether that's worth it or not. But I guess when you were talking about your particular industry, where you know pretty quickly whether or not you'll get results you know, from there, you can manage it carefully. Is that what you're trying to say? Sort of. I guess my, my advice again would be with this is, and again, reflecting on my own circumstances, the wonderful thing about a startup is usually you don't have a whole lot to lose. Yeah. So pivoting is usually fairly cheap. Then it's just a case of once you find that something is working, not making too many huge changes from that point on. Yeah. Once you find that something's working, because... When you don't have, like, like I said, when you when you're small and you don't really have anything to lose, you can sort of throw everything out and start again if you want to, because there's nothing really, like, you don't have income streams that you would like to still be there, that you're potentially sacrificing and all that kind of stuff. So, I think it's easy to pivot for a startup. It's it's a lot harder when you know you're, you're a bit more established, I guess. But that's part of the conundrum, I guess, of remaining innovative as well is you kind of do want to keep experimenting a little bit. And I think that's where you, you get a, you get a few years down the track as maybe a larger company and maybe you're more about just leveraging the success you've had than actually responding to the market anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in a sense, I think pivoting should still be a part of everyone's mindset at some stage. Because if, you, if you're never going to respond to the market after you've found 
let's just say you, you find the cash cow business and you go, right, that's it. Then you're really kind of tied to whatever time frame that business has, which, you know, is getting shorter all the time. I remember when I was doing my finance course, we were learning that the companies would spend, you know, 20, 30 years at the top of these share indices in the States, like the Dow Jones and NASDAQ. And then it was getting shorter and shorter as companies were finding that they were just becoming irrelevant much quicker. So I think pivoting is is always going to be a part of what you're doing. The trick with it, though, is, as you've said, is getting the pivoting right. It, I guess it's like a, for want of a better word, like a dance. Hmm. Your rhythm, how you respond to the market, who you're dancing with, you know, that takes practice to get it right. And I guess when you're a new startup, like you're not losing anything by making some bad moves necessarily because you're, you're not sacrificing a revenue stream. The only thing you sacrifice is time, really, which can be, I suppose, in some in some ways, just as important, if not more, though. So that yeah. it's not an easy problem to solve, I think. Like, yeah. But yeah, the one piece of advice I can give is, at least in the digital realm, pivoting is typically quite a quick thing, at least for telling that it's working or not. Again, what we're just talking about is experimentation, right? About iterative experiments. You make a change, you see what the result is. If the results are good, then you, you want to keep the change. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a guest here on the Genesis of Startups today, James. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. So I hope the audience has found your insight into patience and knowing when on how to pivot incredibly valuable. If you'd like to learn more about James or about CrowdRender, feel free to drop us a line on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. Until next time.